Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of The Dairy Age. Chagas are running a weekly Let's Talk Dairy webinar series, which is also being made available as a podcast. On this week's webinar, Stuart Child speaks to Dennis Howard, a vet from Munster Bovine, about health screening for dairy herds. Dennis quantifies the prevalence of various diseases across the national dairy herd and provides management practices and describes how the use of vaccines can protect your dairy herd. Okay, so good morning everyone. Uh, Welcome to today's Let's Talk Dairy. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dennis Howard from Munster Bovine. Um, Dennis is with Munster, I think about three years nearly now, Dennis, is it? I suppose just over two, Stuart. Just over two, sorry. Okay, okay. So Dennis was a vet in practice in the Mitchestown area um, for a good number of years before that and a very highly respected vet in practice and has gone into uh, Munster Bovine now and is focusing on all aspects around reproduction and heart health uh, with Munster Bovine, working with Doreen and uh, Carolyn, as many of you will know, uh, on a daily basis. So Dennis is going to talk to us today in relation to the whole health screening. I suppose it's something that is common um, in, in certain parts of the country now, uh, especially the Munster area, um, more farms beginning to do it uh, and maybe more co-ops across the country beginning to engage in this area as well. So Dennis has some interesting information to show us in relation to the progression over the last number of years since the bulk, milk, bulk tank screenings that came in. Uh, and he's going to talk through the diseases that the that Munster are looking at on an annual basis. So Dennis, you're going to have, you have a few slides there that you're going to show us and we'll chat away and we'll take questions as we go as well, folks, um, because we'll be moving from one disease to another. So I suppose if you have a question about it, uh, throw it in as, we, as we're moving along and we'll put it to Dennis, okay? Thanks, Stuart. I suppose the, the Heart Health Programme is on the go since 2013. It is available to all farmers really in the Munster area. Um, so the milk samples are collected four times a year. Um, most of the processors actually organise for the collection of the samples, so there's no effort required from the herd owner's point of view. Um, and I suppose our herd health programme then, there's kind of three levels to it, so we call it the gold, silver and bronze. So the bronze is test only, silver is test plus um, a phone consult at the end of the year. And then the gold is um, testing with a one-on-one meeting with one of our one of our own vets at the end of the year. So I suppose the service continues to grow every year, Stuart. Um, and there's just over two and a half thousand herds there now in the program. So it's um, so there's a fair bit of data generated, I suppose, with all those herds. And that's what we're going to try and look at today is maybe look at some of the trends and some of the learnings over the years. So that's the diseases that are tested for then. Um, so we'll talk about some of the main ones today. So BBD, IBR, lepto, neospora, liver fluke, salmonella, stomach worms, um, some others then have dropped out uh, um, either in the past or, or recently. And last year then we tested for Q fever and mycoplasma as well. So two new tests last year. So we might start off with BBD. Um, and I suppose from our point of view, we test twice a year for it. Such as total antibody tests. So that means that it'll pick up vaccine antibodies and the actual antibodies coming from the virus. Um, so in the last two years, actually, we've noticed a downward trend in, in, the, in the herds testing positive. So there is, they are starting to drop off. And I suppose that's to be expected, really. And I have um, a couple of pictures up there that I borrowed from AHI looking at you know, I suppose a graph or a representation of the, the PIs born in 2013 versus um, last year, and it is fairly stark, um, and it is a great illustration in fairness. And I suppose just to put it in context, back in 2013, there was 66 PIs per 10,000 calves born. Last year, there was three per 10,000 calves born, so a massive reduction. And I suppose we're starting to see the, the bulk milk antibodies drop off, and obviously, you know, one reason for that is the number of PIs being born is massively reduced. And the other thing is people are starting to drop the vaccination. Um, and I suppose that's a common question we get is, should I still keep vaccinating for BBD or not? And look, clearly the risk is, is after reducing massively. The risk isn't gone completely. And I suppose really it is, um, it is a case-by-case basis. Yeah, Dennis, I suppose the one thing that I, like I said, did earlier, um, 
that I've never looked at those two maps compared to one another. I've just looked at them as we've progressed year on year. They've been reducing, obviously, from the one on the left that people can see on the screen there. And I know people complain a lot about the fact that the BVD tag testing is still in place and so forth. But like, as you said, we're planning to have freedom by 2023. So we're nearly there. Um, and I don't think people actually can quantify it. And you'll have, you'll have seen it probably in practice. People won't actually be able to put a value on what this programme has actually done for Ireland in terms of herd health because BVD was was uh, rife actually and like it was kind of a gateway disease in a way as well, was it? In that like, oh, sure it was, yeah. stuff was yeah, piggybacking sure. on it. Yeah, I remember back in, in practice, like the amount of calls you'd get, um, you know, sick calves or a, or a very poor calf, a calf not thriving. And you'd inevitably you'd test this poor calf, you know, that looked like a PI, and inevitably it was a PI. But he was hanging around. The difference back then was he was hanging around for probably months, you know, and he he was after infecting all around him. And you're dead right, George. Like other animals will pick up the virus, they'll get over it. But there's a big immunosuppression when they do pick it up, um, and you know it really. It's what's made the chances of picking up other diseases, getting pneumonia, getting scour, um, all sorts of other things. It really increased the chance of them. So it has been a massive, it's been a massive achievement. And if the, you know, if we can achieve the freedom by 2023, and that's the aim now, uh, AHI have applied at European level for um, recognition for the programme, like to do it in a decade. Um, fair enough, there was, um, it could have been a little bit quicker at the start if, if, um, if calves were, you know, got rid of quicker, I suppose, but... Um, it's still a massive achievement, Stuart, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I suppose it's I suppose it's always a challenge. Uh, you could say that there was mistakes made at the start of it in terms of the compensation. People were holding out for compensation, and in reality, the compensation was only a tiny piece of the overall piece of the jigsaw, really. But um, yeah. compensation has probably speed, speed it up, speeded it up all right in the last couple of years. But like that. That map it just really drives it home from my perspective as to how bad it actually was, and yeah, yeah. I, I I really don't think people can comprehend how much damage BVD actually was potentially doing. I mean, empty cows at the end of the year they're empty cows, but it, a lot of that could be tied back to um, BVD in a lot of cases, and also um, as you said there, I think Aidan Murray did an article recently in relation to beef herd that they were involved with uh, through the Better Beef or Better Better Farm program and uh, significant, as in I'm talking about somewhere in the region of 10 to 20,000 of a cost on the farm as a result of BVD, like so. Um, the small bit of money that we have to spend on the tag testing in the short term for another couple of years is, is well worth it if we can actually eradicate it completely. Yeah, yeah. So um, I suppose the push is on now. Um, I mean, there's, there's more stringent measures there now. If there's a PI barn this year, there's no, there's no retesting. Um, herd is actually restricted for three weeks after he's gone. The whole herd must be blood tested. The whole herd must be vaccinated. So <clears throat> um, it's, it is more strict now as we move into the final phase, I suppose. But um, yeah, sure. Look, it, it's, uh, hopefully, hopefully we can get there now by, by 2023 to be to be a huge achievement. And just on the vaccination piece, then, Dennis, like I know one herd last year where they actually um, bought in heifers from a reliable source, but the reliable source was actually bouncing a person who had a PI and there was <coughs> PI calves born as a result of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there was actually scour and a scour outbreak in the, in the house as a result of the BVD breakdown. But like, would you, in terms, like you said, people are dropping off the vaccination. You don't have a very good knowledge of what's going on around the locality to, to drop it really at the moment. Yeah, like, would you? Good. yeah. As I said, like it's all about risk, and the risk is obviously hugely reduced, but it's not gone, and there is still isolated cases, just like you described there, Stuart. So, um, so look, is, I would be doing my, my homework if, if you're an open herd or you're buying in. Um, some people are still vaccinating their heifers because heifers generally they're, they're, they're on out farms or they're, they're away from home, whereas the cows maybe are at home and they're, they're more secure in the grazing block at home. But... Um, and I suppose look, talk, talk to talk to your own vets as well because they'll often have a lot of local knowledge about, about what's going on and things like that. So, um, but like in general, obviously the risk is is hugely reduced. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, and at the cost of the vaccination as well, then it's like it just really doesn't make sense to drop it. And until we can say it, until really the country is BVD free, 
yeah, I, like, I don't know. Would I be recommending it to anybody to drop it? Like, and I suppose the herds that are dropping it, they probably have been vaccinating with a long time, um, which means, yeah, they have, they've got protection from the vaccine, but then they're, they're completely naive. They have no natural immunity. Um, so, you know, they're probably quite exposed then as well if they do drop it uh, in subsequent years. So you're right, it's not a deer vaccine. It fits in there with lepto. If you're doing it pre-breathing, it fits in there. So it's not huge effort either. So um, at this stage, you'd nearly be inclined to err on the side of caution for for the last couple of years, really. You know. Yeah, yeah. You've got you've gone this far. You might as well stay the course, basically. Like exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose you're going to move on to maybe the, the disease that might replace the BVD if it's if it's eradicated. Yeah. <laughs> suppose, yeah. Sure. Looks as likely that. Maybe there is a program coming for, for IBR um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I suppose we're a big exporter of cattle and a lot of countries in Europe now have, have programs in place. And if our calves or our cattle are going to be passing through those countries, it is likely that we're going to have to up our game and put some kind of a program in place. But that's probably a story for a different day. Um, so I suppose just with IBR, it is bovine herpes virus one. Uh, we test for three times a year. There's, there's two tests, depending if you're vaccinating or not. So there, there's the IgB, which is, tests all the antibodies, both vaccine antibodies and, vaccine, and antibodies from the virus. And then there's the IgE test, which just tests um, the wild antibodies. So all the vaccines are marker vaccines, and this allows you to, to exclude the vaccine antibodies from the test and just test for wild antibodies, which is very useful when you're vaccinating. You can actually monitor the progress. Um, and I suppose just Last year, there was about 340 herds joined our program last year, and 32% of them were positive, um, which, is, which is quite a lot, and it was probably news to a lot of them. Um, and in talking to a lot of them, they would have said, jeepers, I don't notice anything, any signs of IBR in my herd. The cows are perfectly healthy. Everything is going fine. And, and that is actually to be expected, because I suppose you can kind of um, categorize herds in two, really, with IBR. It was if you have a naive herd and IBR comes in, then really you'll see the clinical signs in the cows, the high temperatures, the milk drop, the respiratory signs. Whereas if a herd has it for a, a good number of years, those herds are called endemic. So the, the infection is in there, they have high immunity, but still the virus is circulating away in the background. And what it's actually doing is holding back production. And Rena Sayers in Moore Park, Stewart, she would have done a big trial on this a few years back, comparing herds that were vaccinating or clear versus herds that had high levels of, of infection in the herd. And she found no major difference in sick cows, but the big difference she found was in production. And the figure she came up with back then was around 200 litres of milk per cow per year. So I suppose in herds where it was there for a long time, it was really seen more as a production disease. Saying that, you can get issues in young stock. You know, it can cause respiratory issues in calves and young stock. But in the cows, um, it's really, it hits production. So from that point of view, you know, it is low-hanging fruit, really, and, and it is well worth going after it. And I suppose the good news is the vaccines work extremely well. Um, that graph I have up there on the right, so that's, that's herds that are in the programme and testing regularly with the last five years. So that's about 1,300 herds. And that orange line there is, is actually, you can see the marked reduction year on year in the level of wild antibodies in those herds. And even in individual herds, you know, the reduction would be even better again. So if you're vaccinating, you're protecting the young stock from a young age, so the, the animals that hadn't, they're being protected. The vaccine is, is stopping the shedding in the animals that had the virus. And what happens then is as older cows that are antibody, wild antibody positive leave the herd, they're being replaced by heifers that are clean, that have never picked up the virus protected from the vaccine. And year on year, then you see the wild antibodies in the herd drop. So you're actually eradicating it back out of the herd again over the years. And in fairness, the majority of the time that works just like you'd expect. Some herds, it doesn't work. And I suppose the most common re reason we see for it not working is, um, is people are not starting young enough with the vaccine. So they're maybe vaccinating the cows and the in-calf heifers, and they're not doing the calves or the maiden heifers. And what's happening is the young stock have actually picked up the virus before they're vaccinated. They're joining up the herd in, and they have wild antibodies and the bulk milk isn't changing at all. So that's the most common, I suppose, reason we'd see for it. But absolutely, if you have a good, strong vaccination program in place, you're starting young and the calves are three months old plus, um, you can actually really reduce the, the, the levels of, of wild antibodies in the herd.
but then it's the, there's two well, two, there's a live vaccine and a dead vaccine, I suppose. Um, my understanding of it is that live should go in at, in kind of the month of June, or July period, maybe so that all your calves that are born in the springtime will be picked up at that stage. And you have to go with a second live visit in, uh, then in those. Yeah, so I suppose for, for, for all the vaccines, the standard program is, is the live vaccine every six months. Yeah, and you're right, Stuart. Um, my preference would be maybe around Christmas time, so maybe early January, and then you know June, July, and, and it fits very well. So you're boosting the cows pre-calving just before the time when their immune system is lost. And the other thing is then it kind of fits in well because in June, July, all your calves or all your replacement heifers anywhere are three months old, and they're old enough to get the live vaccine. I suppose where it gets a bit complicated then is the once-a-year programs. Um, and I suppose Soetis have a once-a-year program that's the dead vaccine. So they must get a live first. And within six months, then they get a dead. And it's, it's, a, it's the inactivated vaccine yearly after that. Um, and MSD have a once-a-year program then with the live vaccine. So you stay on the live, they get two shots six months apart, and then they go on to the once-a-year live after that. Um, so look, I'd say it's a herd by herd basis. That I'm supposed, to, you know, um, as regards the choice of vaccine, we mightn't go into it too much now, Stuart. But yeah. um, you know, I suppose to, you know, talk to your own vet about the, about the choice of program. But I suppose generally, you know, the live twice a year in a, in a heavily infected herd, the live twice a year starting, um, and then see see how you're going. And I suppose if you're if you for monitoring it in the bulk milk and the wild antibodies are dropping, um, and certainly if they've dropped down to a low level. Um, you know, you can certainly go on to a once-year program at that stage, but I suppose it depends on the company. Then they they advocate the, the live or the the twice-year versus the once-year, maybe at different stages. You know, so we'll we'll we might leave it. Um, yeah, it was, it's case by case, really. Like so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. And it also again, similarly, I suppose, not different to the BVD. The kind of depending on the loading in the in the territory. As well, it could influence whether you go six every six months. You know, if, if you're in a very densely populated area of stock, like yeah. you yeah, probably yeah. need to be air on the safe side and, and do it every six months. Yeah, I suppose the one company are happy enough to go in with the once year program straight away. The other one would prefer the wild antibodies in the bulk milk to be low, so the level you know it's well under control before you go in once a year. Um, but yeah, but generally. Um, you know, in a high risk or as high high levels, um, you won't go wrong with the live twice a year anyway, that's for sure. Yes, but there's just one question there, Dennis. Now I know you're you're getting bogged down in the vaccine now and you didn't want to potentially, but is the once a year live any different from the once a year inactive? Um well I suppose it is it's slightly different in that the once a year live with, with MSD, they like the they do stipulate that they would like the, the level of infection in the herd to be well well under control. Um, in, say in the scenario of the bulk milk, that you'd be testing with low levels of wild antibodies before you go on to the once a year. So they do stipulate that. Um, whereas uh, Zoetis, I suppose they have they're happy to go from the start with the, with their once a year program. But yeah, so I'd say it is a case by case basis really. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, now, leptospirosis, George, I suppose it is, it's kind of one that gets a little bit forgotten about because you've, there's a lot of other diseases take the limelight ahead of it, um, especially in the last few years. But it's still very important. Um, I suppose one, when I looked into this, um, there was actually only 10% of all the herds were testing negatively cons consistently. So there is some herds that are testing negative, but they're really few and far between. There's nearly two thirds, two -thirds of the herds vaccinating, um, but there's the, mess, the big message is there's very few negative herds that is, that is really um, endemic in the country. Um, the clinical signs, I suppose you don't, in endemic herds where there's a lot of infection, you rarely see, you know, let's say the milk drop, the mastitis, that kind of thing. Um, but it's definitely still responsible for, for abortions. I mean, it can settle out in the uterus if a cow gets infected, it can go to the kidneys or go to the uterus. If, if it's settled out in the uterus, it does affect fertility, conception rates, embryonic deaths, um, you know, abortions. So it, it can definitely cause issues with fertility. Um, with calf health, you can get weak calves. And I suppose the biggest, 
apart from the, the animal health side of it, it's zoonotic as well. So it is one of these diseases that you can pick up yourself. And I put up a picture of a milking parlor. I mentioned the kidneys earlier on. It settles out in the kidneys and they can shed it in the urine. And if you wanted a better place to, for yourself to pick it up, you probably, you know, you couldn't choose any place better than a milking parlor where the cows are up high. You know, you have a hot environment, lots of water. Um, so look, I think it probably beholds everyone really to, to vaccinate for it. You know, there's very few people that shouldn't be vaccinating anyway, that's for sure, um, for, the, for the health of the animals, but also for, you know, the health of yourself, your, you know, your parents, maybe your children, you know, family farms, you can have different age groups inside the pit. And then obviously people that are working in the farm as well, that are employed, you know, for their, for their sake as well. So everyone should nearly be vaccinating for it, Stuart, to be honest. Yeah, just uh, as you said, predominantly from people's own perspective, but like, as you said there, if there's anybody working on the farm, like they, they actually, there, there is a concern about people there that you could be liable if somebody picked that up uh, and you had been, basically it'd be seen to be negligible that you hadn't actually been vaccinating hard. So it's something that people should be very conscious of. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's two sides to it. There's the there's the animal health, but absolutely the, the human health piece as well. You know, so uh, it's not a deer vaccine. It's a very effective vaccine. Um, and, you know, there's there's no reason not to do it, really, I think, you know. Yeah. And I suppose, Dennis, then in terms of timing, there was trouble getting it there a couple of years ago and there was probably... It, it used to generally be kind of suggested for the maiden heifers that it was around Valentine's Day and then Patrick's Day for the booster, the second shot. Um, is the advice around that changing? I, I think there was some suggestion maybe to move away from busy period when people are up to their eyes to kind of make, maybe do it pre-Christmas. Yeah, personally, I would have no issue um, bringing it back to the dry period anyway. So actually vaccinating while the cows are dry, um, you know, I suppose from a cow point of view, it makes sense, you know, instead of doing it in March when they're when the pressure is on as regards negative energy, there's still cows calving, there's cows, you know, on the point of calving maybe, um, and the pressure is on work-wise as well. So it is, it's a difficult time to try and put all the cows through the crush and the cows are under pressure, that the people are under pressure. Um, so I think pulling it back to the dry period, like either is fine with putting it back to the dry period. There's, there's absolutely no problem with doing it. Um, the cows are dry or else they're in late lactation so they're under no pressure and generally the whole system is under less pressure so um, I think it makes sense it makes sense um, in certain scenarios definitely to pull it back I suppose another thing is traditionally then the timing was maybe you know we were out to grass later and this is to do with your NPH but as you well know Stuart we're going out to grass a lot earlier now we were chatting about it there earlier on um, so Maybe that's there's an argument there as well that they're going to grass earlier. The urine pH is, is changing, which can you know cause animals to start shedding. So that's maybe another reason that you could you could go in earlier, maybe during the dry period as well. Okay, very good. Um, so then Salmonella. So I suppose there's two strains of it there: Stuart Salmonella Dublin, Salmonella Typhonurium. Um, about half the the herds in the program, half the two two and a half thousand herds are vaccinating. Um, so I borrowed a graph there from the regional vet labs. This was um, Alan Johnson presented this there to show some department webinar before Christmas. And they've really seen a big reduction in, in the cases of salmonella abortions and, and I suppose deaths from salmonella in calves and things coming into the regional veterinary lab. So there's a clear reduction there in the last decade. And I suppose what is the reason for it? Um, like the one anyway is, is increased vaccination. So we see, I suppose, in the graph I've on the bottom, then there, you know, the last three years, herds that joined the program, they realize they're positive. Um, and usually, I mean, the advice is, is to vaccinate because it can be so devastating. And generally they do, you know, so people, it does, it does push people to, to vaccinate and vaccination is probably increasing in, in those herds. Another reason is BBD, like we were talking about earlier on, that was one, one hypothesis they had, um, you know, that if, there's way less PIs being born, there's less immunosuppression, um, which decreases other diseases as well, including salmonella. And I suppose another reason is what I'm coming on to next actually is decreased liver fluke. That there is a correlation there between liver fluke infection and um, the increased chance of having an abortion with salmonella or having an outbreak of salmonella. So 
that's another one if you can control liver fluke you re reduce your your risk as well so there's probably three reasons there but in general the trend is down for salmonella across the country okay and, and salmonella in calves is something that isn't that common but can be extremely devastating if it does i don't know did you ever see that in practice yeah i saw it rarely enough but i did see it you know so you can get you know septicemia so very very sick calves bad scours um and it's like they can really go downhill very quickly, dehydrate very quickly, and if they have septicemia, very hard to bring them back. Um, and then you get this necrosis of the extremities, you know, that's a real sign of it as well. Um, the, the tips of the ears and things like that um, starting to fall away. So rare enough, like, but absolutely, Stuart, when it, when it does happen, it's fairly devastating. And I suppose as regards the vaccination then, um, you know, I suppose traditionally vaccinating for salmonella, if just the calves are trying to protect, it's a bit like um, the scour vaccines are vaccinating pre-calving. But in, in the context of, of our system here in Ireland and the spring, you know, the, the spring calving grass-based system, the big risk actually comes there in October, November. And part of it is due to the, the nature of, of the, the bacteria. The other part is, is actually to the stress of cows being dried off so there's a stress associated with that that can actually start carrier cows can start shedding um, and then the other thing of course it coincides with housing and if they're starting to shed you can get that spread when they're going into the house and you know we've, we've all heard of those disastrous stories with you know with cows aborting and a nice few cows can abort um, if it does if you do get an outbreak so it can be particularly devastating whether it's sick calves abortion or indeed sick cows, you know, you can get very sick cows with it as well. So um, so if it is there, you know, I think it's a real insurance policy to try and, you know, to vaccinate and, and, pre and prevent that, that disastrous situation happening. Yeah, I suppose then it's the one thing that sticks out with me. I, I had a client, and Jesus, uh, a long number of years ago, and I was probably 10 years ago or more, that got actually salmonella outbreak in calves in the springtime. And the, the the thing that really struck home with me was he said that uh, he rang the knackery one day to come and collect some more dead calves, basically. And the knackery said to him, is there any chance you'd put them into the one spot as opposed to having to drive around the air to collect them? Like, it was that devastating. Like, there was yeah. calves dying, no matter what house he had them in, they were, it was just an absolute nightmare for him. And generally, you would find that anybody who has gone through a salmonella outbreak, be it abortions or or the calf scour, which, as I said, is, is a lot more rare, I suppose, than the abortion storm scenario. They mm. will, they'd, they'd kill for to get the vaccine, basically, at the end of the year. They wouldn't go without it. Yeah. And the other thing about it, it can go in cycles. So if it's in a herd, you might see nothing for years. And then something happens. Maybe maybe there's, there's liver fluke on the farm. There's something else going on. Maybe a wet back in. There's stress on the cows. And bang, it can, it can come back again. So, um, so like... It's one of those ones that it's very hard to predict. Um, and yeah, anyone that has had a, a brush with it in the past, they'll, um, you're right, they'll go through fire and water to get their hands on the vaccine to prevent it again, you know. Okay, very good. So we spoke about liver fluke there and, you know, and that link there with, with salmonella. And I suppose, so the graph on the right there, like we've really seen a downward trend in, in liver fluke. So that's that 1,300 herds again that have been in the program consistently with the last five years. And this is test four, so the last test of the year. So we test uh, Neospora or liver fluke, sorry, four times. Um, and we, Neospora is the one we, we, we test late as well. So we test liver fluke and Neospora there in November. And I suppose this is really to try and pick up those late infections. Um, and last year actually was a, was a case in point with the wet back end. So I suppose in 2016, there was just maybe 46% of herds testing positive of those 1300 herds testing positive uh, in the November test. And there was a reduction all the way then year on year down to in 2019, it was down to just around 23%. So a big reduction, you know, by anyone's standards. And I suppose, what, what is the reason? And I suppose we do have a big focus on, on the meetings at the end of the year of trying to really target those the herds with a high liver fluke reading at the end of the year and really target those herds to try and get their dosing right and really get a good kill over the winter. So I suppose the first thing is actually to identify 
the infection. So the bulk milk does that very well. It picks up the infection. It's very, very good for picking up the infection. The next thing is then to try and get the dosing right. Um, so the right product, get the timing right. And one thing we really noticed over the years, and Doreen would, would always say this, is it is a disaster to, to underestimate the body weight of cows. And cows can be heavier than you think at that time of year in November, December. Um, the last thing I want to do is underestimate the weight. So particularly with, with triclobendazole and albendazole, they're very safe. So you're better off to, to err on the side of caution and give them a bit more. Um, Xanil is, is another story. So, so that's one thing, getting the dosing right. And then I suppose we test again then in April and to monitor the cure over the dry period. And all going well, if you get a good kill, especially if you go in early with the likes of triclobendazole, you should get a good kill and your antibodies should be dropped right back down in the first test the following year. And if you're not getting a good kill, then what is the reason or what went wrong? And I suppose the other thing then is the, the effects of getting your dosing right every winter, the effects are cumulative. So if you do a good job um, this year, the cows go out to pasture infection-free, they're going to be, there's less contamination of the pasture. Um, so hopefully you'll have a lower burden the following winter. And you know if you can if you can repeat this year on year, you can really make a big difference when it comes to liver fluke. So we have and this will be right back as two thousand as far as two thousand thirteen. We'd see I just picked out those thirteen hundred hertz for to have a fairly clean set, but that trend is, is all the way back. If you can re do a really good job and repeat it year on year, you can. We've had we've had lots of hertz that were positive for liver fluke in the past, and. Um, are actually clear now at a good number of years and really reducing their winter dosing then, or, or what winter dosing they're doing. And obviously cows have only one liver, you know, it is critical for health, for immunity, for production. So, you know, it is, it is really um, critical to try and get the, to try and control it as best you possibly can. There are certain farms that do struggle, you know, um, down to the, the land type, but um, but still, you still want to try and get your dosing right. But unfortunately, you know, certain certain areas they will pick up the infection again the following year, and you're repeating that cycle every year. But it's also just important in Dennis to have a handle on it. Even even though you know that you're in a fluky area, you still need to monitor it on an ongoing basis. It's not a it's not you just assume that you have a fluke scenario and that you deal with it like it's worth it's still worth doing the sampling for us, isn't it? It is absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I suppose hopefully the majority of people do make progress and you won't know you're making progress unless you're monitoring. And like it is it is a really good way of monitoring both the infection at the back end of the year and also the response to treatment and how well you got on over the dry period. And then Dennis, in terms of um, kind of resistance maybe in those areas, would there be an issue with that potentially? Sure, it wouldn't be reported, but anecdotally... I would say yes, you know, um, like there is a lot of resistance to triclobendazole in sheep. Um, I suppose uh, so in, in areas where there's a good lot of sheep, there's, there is a lot of resistance to triclobendazole and it's the same liver fluke. So it's the same liver fluke that affects sheep as cattle. And if the fluke becomes resistant to triclobendazole in sheep, um, it's going to be resistant in cattle as well. So that, I suppose that is a concern. And sure, look, antilomintic resistance in general is a big concern that... Um, you know, the future of our doses, like there's lots of resistance reported there to the warmers, um, the work done up in Grange there a few years back to the white drenches and the, you know, the, the ivermectin type products, the macrocyclic lactones, that there is, you know, well-documented resistance there. So, um, you know, not as, not as well-documented to liver fluke in cattle, but, um, but I suppose if you extrapolate from the sheep, it is a concern for sure. Yeah, and I suppose just in terms of the you were saying about the the appropriate weight for the cow for the dosing, like Doreen always says to weigh the heaviest cow in, or the biggest cow in the farm and dose everything to the basis of that. Then isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so your 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 Rolls Royce is to weigh every cow, obviously, and adjust your dose depending on the weight, but. At the very minimum, just dose everything to the weight of the heaviest cow would be the... Exactly. So you will be overdosing some animals slightly, but as I said, the triclobendazole products, the albendazole products, they're very safe. You know, if you do give a bit over and above, it has no adverse effect. Um, obviously, um, 
there's that little tiny product, then it's, it's a max dose on that. So regardless of the weight, you don't go beyond the max dose because it can be hard enough. But definitely the last thing you want to be doing is underdosing. So even if you do overestimate the weight a bit, I wouldn't be worried about it for, for, um, for triclobindazole or albendazole type products. You know, you're better off to go a bit over than, than under. Yeah, so a good story to tell there in terms of the, the trends in the liver fluke, but constant monitoring is still required though. It is. And look, I suppose um, 2020 was a case in point, you know, a very a wet back end in 2020 and herds that had been testing negative maybe for the last number of years. Um, sure, you know, they, they actually popped up again. There was a nice few herds came, came back positive just on the last test. Not huge high readings now, but you know, they, they did pick up a bit of a burden there in the back end. So I suppose that is a benefit of the constant monitoring that you can, you can pick up these, these, um, these scenarios where, where infection creeps in again. You know. yeah. Excellent. Uh, the stomach worms then. So the worm that's been tested for is Ostertasia, Ostertasiae, which is probably the most significant one in, in cows and cattle and the most common. Um, so there's no real trend. We were, we were looking at this earlier. I was asking you, Stuart, was 16 a wet year, and you weren't, you weren't quite sure. I'm not quite sure, but maybe, maybe there was a wet period. But I suppose one trend is that the, we tested twice in June and August, and usually the August one is, is higher, the exception being in 18, the drought it actually dropped off. So, and then stayed quite low the year after, actually. So you know the desiccation of that drought really did have a positive effect on and reducing parasites, but again, then in the August 20, the wet back end, it rose up again. So it certainly illustrates the, the weather has a significant role to play when it comes to parasites. So I suppose we're measuring antibodies. So that's what's been measured. And adult animals should have good immunity to, to stomach worms. So they, they should have strong immunity. So the question is then, is a high reading, is it a high burden or is it good immunity? So high reading for sure, if, they get, if you get a high reading back, you know there's been exposure. So you know that the animal's immune system has kicked in to try and deal with this with the high levels on the pasture. And the question is then, is it, are they dealing with it themselves or is it, um, have they a high burden? And I suppose, like, the big thing for me is I'm always encouraging farmers to, not to dose just on the results alone, just to, do, to it's all about monitoring. In the future, parasite control really, with, with resistance and all the rest of it is all about monitoring. So monitoring performance in the case of cows, it's the bull tank, it's how they're producing. Um, in the case of young stock, maybe, you know, the, the live weight gain. Looking at the body condition, the clinical signs in the case of lungworm, which we don't test for now, is, um, you know, coughing. You're, you're always looking out for the clinical signs for lungworm. Um, but for stomach worms, then, you know, are the cows looser than they normally are? Um, so looking at performance, looking at clinical signs, keep an eye on the weather, you know, if there's a wet year, you're going to have a higher chance of, of high burdens and then bringing in your diagnostics as well. So you're trying to look at everything and decide, do, do the cows need dosing? And I think the, the day for, you know, this routine dose saying, yeah, I, I dose my cows every year and in the first of June, you know, I think the day for that is gone and we must try and do more monitoring. And if they need to be dosed, absolutely. But if they don't, you know, you'd prefer not to be dosing because every time you dose them, you know, you're affecting the immunity, especially with maybe the poor ones, you're affecting the cow's immunity. You're, you know, they can be quite toxic to insects and the dung beetle and that kind of stuff. And, and those fellas, which, which are our friends when it comes to parasite control. So we want to try and reduce our dosing, but at the same time, when we need to dose, we want the products there that will work and do a job for us. Dennis, um, do you see any, do you see it in the future? I don't know if you've had any discussions yourselves, like do you see the milk recording feeding into this, we'll say in terms of individual cow data? Um, yeah, it's supposed to be nice, wouldn't it? That if, if you could correlate um, production, individual production more with, um, with the likelihood of, or with, correlated more with performance and um, the likelihood of maybe a parasitic burden or whatever. Um, yeah, and I suppose, look, in that scenario, you're talking about selectively dosium, Stuart, is it? So yeah, Dennis, yeah. Because, like, you know, when you look at the stuff that Lisa Ring has done with ICBF in relation to the liver fluke resistance, the breeding for that, like, you, yeah. you, I just wonder sometimes is there something similar maybe in terms of stomach worms that some are going to be more resistant than others and 
you look at the, our own herd there from time to time, you'd see cows that are a little bit looser than other cows and you just wonder, is it a, are they just more prone to the stomach worm mm-hmm. than if they were dosed then would that yeah. sort them out? But, you know. And age as well, you know, older cows are likely to have stronger immunity than maybe the heifers coming in. Uh, the first or second lactations, the likelihood is that their immunity might be a bit weaker, you know, the stress of joining the herd and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. But, yeah, I think, you know, and in that scenario, selectively dosing the first lactations, if you think they're struggling, I think is a good thing. I suppose the one thing I would say there, if you are selectively dosing during the summer, I would probably veer towards the, the injection rather than the poron, because you know, if, you, if you're poor, use a poron and a, we'll say just the first lactations, they're going to be rubbing off each other inside in the collecting yard. You know, there's a certain amount of leaking and things like that goes on, which means some of the other cows then are going to be getting a very low dose, which you'd imagine couldn't be great for um, preventing the, the development of resistance. So in that scenario, I would say that the injection is probably a better bet if you're selectively dosing your heifers or something like that. Yeah, and that would tie in with, um, Orla Keane would have been on with me last year during the summer as well, and she would say that the injectable would always be the preferable option if possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, not, just, not that the poor on obviously doesn't, yeah. but... Um, but certainly, if you're selectively dosing, you, you'd always poran is kind of designed to do every animal, whereas um, because they're all going to be rubbing off each other and licking each other anyway. Um, whereas the injection, obviously, it has gone under the skin uh, and it's not going to be spread around. Yeah, I suppose it's just to emphasize that people uh, should realize that the poran part of the poran element is that they actually do lick it from one another. Is kind of part of the idea of the whole process, like. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So look, I, I think you know you're right that selective dosing is probably is probably a good thing, you know, to target the animals that need treatment rather than targeting the whole the whole batch. But I would be cognizant of that. All right, that you you know, for cows during the summertime, you're there's no oral drench that has no milk withdrawal, so you're talking injection or pour on. And if you're selective, you probably I'd be inclined to veer towards the the injection anyway. Um, Neospora then, Stuart. So I suppose there's no harm maybe to, to go into a little bit of the, the process of how the disease um, transmits here. So Neospora, caninum, tis, tis a single cell parasite, so it is a protozoa. And another thing before I forget it is to mention that the number of animals being tested here is quite important. So a few five positive cows inside a 100 cow herd you'll probably come back with a, with a high positive reading. Whereas if you have five cows inside in a 500 cow herd, you'll probably come back with a negative reading. So the, the number of, the size of the herd is important to you when interpreting the results. Um, so then if you do have a positive cow inside in the herd, she doesn't spread it to her comrades, that's the first thing. So she, she won't spread it to the cows around her. But when she calves, she'll always have a positive calf. So that's called vertical transmission. And obviously if that calf is a replacement heifer, she'll go on and, and go and calf and join the herd again. So that's vertical transmission from cow to calf. Then it gets a little bit more interesting then when that cow calves, her cleaning is infective to the dog or the fox. So if, if her cleaning gets into the mouth of a dog or a fox, he becomes infected and he actually sheds until he gets immunity, then he'll shed. He's, act, he's the definitive host, that's the first thing. So he completes the life cycle of the parasite and he sheds the eggs out his rear end and if that gets into the feed of your cattle or your cows, whether it's water or contaminated feed, um, that's called horizontal transmission and that'll infect your cows. And that's really where you see the abortions. So if, you, if that happens in a herd that's uninfected or to cows that are uninfected, they have a really high chance of aborting. And that's where you get the abortion storms coming with Neospora. The other side of it, then the vertical transmission when they're infected in the womb, Generally, they go on fairly normally, but they go on calf and they have a less chance of aborting, but they have a higher chance of leaving the herd. So they have a higher chance of, of not going calf at some stage or losing a pregnancy and leaving the herd. So I suppose with that in mind, then there's, there's a couple of pieces to, to controlling Neospora inside in your own herd. So number one, and this is for every herd really, is the horizontal transmission. Um, and that's from cow, cow's cleaning, into the, the mouth of a fox or a dog and back again. So the first thing there is to try and manage the afterbirth so they don't get into the mouth of a dog or a fox. And the next thing then, which is easier said than done, is to protect the feed. Um, 
But look, it's as obvious things happening in the feed face. If you're using a diet feeder, if you're feeding bees or something like that, where foxes could be hanging around, um, get off the loader and have a look around to make sure there's nothing around. It shouldn't be before you go loading. Um, so there are certain things that you can do, but I mean, you can't do a whole lot about out in the pasture and things like that. The next part then is the vertical transmission. And I suppose if you want to make progress within the herd, if you have high levels and it looks like there's vertical transmission, the only way you'll make progress is to actually go test the cows individually. So if we look at the graph here then, I plotted um, the four, I should say Patrick Kelly, I should mention Patrick Kelly here because he's the man to put these graphs together. Um, so he plotted the four, the four tests every year. And you can see there's a clear trend that the last test every year is, is, is the highest antibody reading. And there's a reason for that. So cows that have Neospora, the parasite becomes more active during the pregnancy, the cow's immune system responds and the antibodies shoot up. So you'll always get the highest reading in the bulk milk during the year. And also then it's the best time to test the herd individually is late in the year. So if you're blood sampling, um, you know, during the dry, dry period, ideally. So you want to test the cows in the second half of pregnancy. Um, so then if you do that and you identify the positive cows, you will also, the positive cows and the positive in calf heifers, you'll pretty much know your weanlings as well then because you can tr trace them back to what cows they're off and you'll know the next crop of calves and then you can make the decision if a positive cow, if she's kind of lined up to go, well and good. And if she's staying, if she's hanging around um, to make sure she's, you're not breeding any more replacements off her. So I think to something that's worth doing in herds that are testing high, and you'll see the overall trend is actually an increase over the years. So that's that same 1,300 herds again. Back in, there was about tw over 20% testing positive this is the, um, in 2016 and it has risen up to maybe 27% or something like that there in 2020. So I don't know, Stuart, maybe herd expansion. There's been a good lot of, you know, people retaining cows, maybe carrying over cows, a lot more replacements bred, obviously, movement of animals as well. So maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, so then it's just out of interest now, is there cows that turn up empty at the end of the year? Is there, like... On the basis of what you said there now about the parasite becoming more prevalent during the pregnancy, is it very hard to detect if they actually were empty as a result of Neospora at the end of the breeding season then? It is because if the if the if the pregnancy is gone, the antibodies drop drop down again. So even if they're a positive cow, they have a lower test, a lower chance of testing positive if they're empty. You know, yeah. so but certainly if you have high readings in your herd. Um, you know, you'd, you'd be very slow about recycling cows anyway, or giving cows a chance to come back around again, because even testing them, they could test negative. Yeah, like the, re the reason I asked that question is that you've, I've often heard people say that they've tested their empty cows because they felt it might be Neospora and they all come back negative. Yeah. So, it's, it's so I mean, this is the bulk milk, like, but there is obviously, it is a fairly clear trend, all those spikes are in late or in late, you know, that's the November test. November test, yeah. Yeah, so the antibodies are rising up. So the antibody, the parasite becomes more active and the, and the antibodies rise, so the test becomes more sensitive uh, the later in pregnancy you go. Yeah, and um, the other thing that uh, ah, my train of thought is after kind of half neglecting me now, but I was talking to one of the advisors in Kerry yesterday and he was actually talking about Neospora um, in the herd that he was dealing with. And what he was finding was that they were actually it served in the first three weeks, no sign of a repeat for the full breeding season, and maybe two to three weeks after breeding was finished, these cows that were deemed to be in calf um, to the first service in the first three weeks, next thing breaking down. Mm. So that's a, and and it was a, that that was subsequently confirmed as being Neospora in the herd and are breeding their way out of it now at the moment, but or, well, sorry, breeding their way out of it is it mightn't sound the right, mightn't be the right terminology, but they're they've like you said, they're to, they've stopped the vertical transmission by not breeding uh, replacements yeah. from those cows that were identified, and they're they're beginning to get out of it now. Like, yeah. but um, just uh, to, to, like that's all they're trying to see a cow break down after uh, a full twelve weeks, nearly like, and if it. it if people, it's, I'm just trying to emphasize that people should probably be looking at these things if they are seeing them on their, on their reports coming back yes. to readings. Like. And the individual testing is not something you need to do every year. You know, you do it, try and run with that then for a few years and see how, see how things are going and maybe test again after, after a number of years. And the other thing, George, 
what's the what's the latest figure on the cost of putting a replacement heifer milking in the parlour? So we just uh, we rounded at 1500 including the labour and everything like yeah. Yeah, and and the effort that goes in, you know, to to get her there. Um, I think is you know, it's a shame then if she's if she's neosporo positive after going to all that cost and all that effort. So definitely, I think you'd prefer to be breeding your replacement heifers of neosporo negative cows anyway. So and the only way to know that if you have a high reading, the only way to know that is to go and go and test. So. You've um, just one or two more slides now, I think, is it, Dennis? So they're getting scarce now, Stuart. I kind of ran out of uh, steam a bit here. But um, so, yeah, um, you mentioned that you wanted, I suppose we did stop testing for a few diseases um, in, in 2019. And we added a couple in there last year, Q fever and mycoplasma. So, um, so whichever you want to talk about now, Stuart, if you want to keep going. Yeah, I suppose the I, I, the the Schmallenberg is to, is something that was very prevalent at one stage, and it was interesting. I was talking to one of your colleagues there about it last year, and it still does actually flare up from every now and then. Um, and it was an interesting cycle in it that there's a little bit of it in a herd is probably no harm from the point of view of kind of keeping immunity in the herd. Yeah. But the, I suppose the thing that was um, of most interest to me was the PI3 and the RSV because of having had some herds that I've been dealing with that were running into problems with IBR vaccines supposedly breaking down, but subsequently finding that it was PI3 and RSV issues in herds of cows. Now, it's not very common, but yeah. uh, it seems to it was it was an issue. And like like all herds, basically, from what you're saying, test, they were testing positive for PI3 and RSV in their milk samples, which is to be expected. But yeah. um, I suppose... The fact that you stop testing for it doesn't mean that PI3 and RSV aren't a potential risk factor for farms. Like exactly, so the value of the test is what we we found that nearly all herds were testing with a high positive for, for RSV and PI3, um, and that's that's to be it's it's to be expected. So any pretty pretty much any cow you blood test with antibodies to, to RSV and PI3. So every animal in the herd must pick it up at some stage. And I suppose if they're picking it up as young calves, you can get pneumonia in young calves. If they're picking it up at housing, when you're housing your weanlings, you can get respiratory disease and pneumonia there. Um, and But other than that, they do pick it up at some stage, whether it is at grass, a bit of a cough or whatever. And generally, um, if it is not at housing, if it is not as young calves, generally they'll pick it up and put it over themselves without any major issues. But saying that, I suppose, with the way the whole antibiotic thing is going and everything, you know, like it's it's there's a really compelling case there to be to be vaccinating your weanlings pre-housing and probably vaccinating your calves as well your young calves up the nose for RSV PI3 to try and prevent it in the first place. Um, and you're right, Stuart. Like even that it's in herds of cows. Um, like generally, most herds won't see any issues with it. You won't see any signs, but it does rear its head in some herds. Then, and it can be often maybe. Lung worm is becoming a big issue every summer um, and it can be often on the back of that it might start with lung worm and that creates the conditions for this virus to start circulating and absolutely then it can cause an issue and keep circulating in a herd and I think often herds you know my experience anyway is the better the production so herds that are really hitting their straps there in May June you know averaging 30 litres plus they are the herds I think that, that are a bit more susceptible to those cows have a little bit of a reserve, less of a reserve to fight off these viruses and things at that time of year. Um, so just be, yeah, you're right, just because we stopped testing doesn't mean they're an issue, but I suppose the value of the test was, was limited, we thought, so we, we replaced it with something maybe that we, that we hope would add more value. Okay, so, and just to what you replaced it with then was the Q fever and the mycoplasma. So there's one question in there in relation to the, the Q fever in particular that some herds have seen some very high readings. So just to maybe address that and your thoughts on it. Yeah, so over half the herds we tested anyway came back positive. It was, it was, um, it was up around 60%. So it's it's even more prevalent than would have been previously thought. It was, it was the last kind of study that was done. It was a few years back and it was down around 30%. So it's, it seems to be on the rise. So it is a bacteria, that's the first thing, it is a Coxiella burnetii bacteria. It's, it's not hugely significant, is my feeling in cows, that they'll, they'll pick it up um, and put it over them. And a lot of those herds, those high herds that had high readings, um, they certainly didn't notice a whole lot going on anyway. 
saying that it can cause abortion, so it can cause the odd late-term abortion if it gets into the placenta, uh, or you can get weak calves being born. And I suppose the way it comes into a herd, you, even if you have a very good disease status and you're a closed herd, ticks can bring it in. So, and I've seen that in herds with really good disease status that, um, that you know, Q fever has come in. So ticks can bring it in, but then the main spread happens at calving time. So they shed it in the calving fluids. And that's where the main, the main spread happens within herd. And I suppose the bigger thing I think with it is just one of these zoonotic diseases again. So you can pick it up yourself. The big risk is at calving time, dealing with cows calving or dealing with wet newborn calves. And I've certainly spoken to farmers that, um, that had it diagnosed, which is probably one of those things that's underdiagnosed. Again, flu-like symptoms, quite mild in most people, but the odd person can get sick. So I did speak to one man, his father spent a couple of weeks in hospital with it, and he had a very high reading in the bulk milk tank, and he was actually diagnosed with Q fever. I spoke to another man, he was with a conversation there in the autumn, and he didn't tell me at the time, but he was he was out of sorts a bit, and he went away and got tested, and he was diagnosed with Q fever. So, um, so it is a risk, and... You know, calving is over now, but really, you know, hygienic calving, wearing gloves, and, and looking after looking after yourselves, and 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 a bit like lepto, you know, everyone on the farm, young and old, and um, people working on the farm with you to to put measures in place, I suppose, to to protect protect yourselves. Mycoplasma, then Mycoplasma bovis is another bacteria. Um, so about a third of herds came back positive, which you know talking to Catherine McLoon, UCD, that would be kind of what you'd expect. So it is, it is endemic in Ireland. We've heard a good bit of it over the last couple of years about mycoplasma in New Zealand and calling herds and all the rest of it. So they thought they were completely clear of it. And then it showed up um, in some herd and they really went after a testing to try and get, get back their free status again. It's a bit different in Ireland. There's a lot of movement of animals um, and there's a lot of herds that would be testing positive. Saying that, luckily, in a well-managed herd where stress is low, nutrition is good and cows are well looked after, uh, good housing, etc. it seems to, we'll rarely see signs of disease. So the signs of disease, it can be bad mastitis, uh, a contagious type mastitis that can spread to all four quarters, um, the joint infections, so swollen, painful joints in cows. Um, it can be part of pneumonia in calves. You know, another sign of it in calves is, is ear infection. So one ear dropped down. So the sim if it rears its head, the, the, the symptoms are very nasty, you know, there's none of those nice and they can be fairly devastating in certain situations. But I suppose it's a bit like other bacteria, just say pastorella pneumonia. Pastorella is always in the herd, but it, it, it hops on the, band, the bandwagon if something else is going on. Mycoplasma is a bit like that. If just some other disease, our cows are stressed, our housing isn't, uh, you know, lack of cubicle space, lack of ventilation. Usually, there's something else going on that um, that gives mycoplasma a chance to get going. Such as, as regards prevention, there is no vaccine at the moment, anyway. So prevention really is all about looking after cows as well as you possibly can, keeping the nutrition right, getting the cow comfort as good as it can be, um, and keeping the stress levels low. Okay, very good. So there's uh, in relation to the Q fever, is there any vaccine for that? That's one question that's just come in there. There is, there is a vaccine actually, uh, there's a vaccine licensed in Europe and I presume could be, could be licensed in Ireland very quickly. Um, so yeah, I'd say the jury is probably out. Is it something we need to vaccinate for? Is it, it certainly doesn't seem to cause huge issues from the cow's point of view. Um, the human health part of it is, it, is it a bit like lepto, that it's something that should be controlled? I'm not sure. There's probably no, more work needs to be done, I'd say, Stuart, to, um, to establish the need for vaccination or maybe the, the actual significance of the disease full stop really. So, okay, but very good. And then just uh, John O'Sullivan is asking then as well, could, uh, could using porons during the summer keep Q fever under control? So we'll say managing the ticks scenario with, with your the likes of your spot-ons and so forth. Um, I suppose it could, you know, like, Certainly herds with, with tick bar and fever, that's that's what they're doing to manage it, you know, maybe going in once a month with uh, with a spot on or whatsoever or or whatever. Is this um is it worth doing it for Q fever? Um I'm not so sure. Like it's 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 kind of it's got into a lot of herds now anyway. Um as I said, the main spread happens at calving time, such as the cows shedding it themselves at calving. That's the main way it spreads. You're not going to stop that. And you'd have to be really 
religious with your porons and I'm not so sure tis, tis warranted really to be that religious with, with spot-ons every month for Q fever. So, but again, probably more work needed there, Stuart, to see, um, to see the significance of that. Yeah, and I think even Dennis, you said it earlier as well about the dung beetles and so forth. I think the, the likes of the spot-ons are actually neg- have a negative effect on them as well, don't they? I'm pretty they sure. Do, yeah. So yeah. There's, there's a balance there, isn't there? You know, um, yeah. And on balance, I'd say probably no, unless there was tick-borne fever now is a, is a different situation where you can be getting respiratory disease and milk drop and all that kind of stuff. So it's really affecting the cow. Q fever is not really affecting the cow that much anyway. So, um Tick-borne fever, I would say yes, but Q fever, probably unbalanced, no. Yeah, and just going back then into the presentation before we wrap up, then there's two questions. Um, one is relating to the IBR again. If you don't have IBR issue and vaccinating using live, is it better to stay on live all the time or change to the inactive? Because um, if you've no, if you've no issue, if you're testing completely clear um, and you're vaccinating purely perfect for prevention. I don't think it matters which program you're on, to be honest, whether it is the once a year live or the once a year dead. Um, so the, the, the virus isn't there. What you're trying to do is keep it out. And I think one, once a year vaccination, whether, whether it is the once a year live or the once a year dead, is sufficient in that scenario. Okay, very good. And then the, f- um, the final question that's here at the minute anyway, is it better, is it not better to blanket dose for worms as cows dosed would cough up worms and then the, the cows not dosed would ingest these. Say that again now, Stuart. So we were just, the way we were talking about the selective dosing, um, yeah. so that you were saying that if you, you, if you were to dose the heifers and they're obviously in the herd, this person is asking if they shed out the, the worms um, following the dose, are the cows that aren't dosed going to pick that up then? Yeah, I suppose in any herd, there's always going to be a low level of worms anyway, so they're going to be shedding out. Um, there's going to be contamination of pasture at a low level. And that's actually what keeps the immunity topped up. So you kind of want that in a way, a low level and keeping the immunity topped up. I suppose what we were talking about is if certain animals in the herd have low immunity to start off with, like your heifers, um, and the rest of the animals have strong immunity, should you dose if, if you could dose those animals selectively, um, it would be a, a positive, I think, because you're using less dosing and you're not affecting the immunity of the rest of the herd. So as regards the animals shedding, shedding out the worms, um, that shouldn't have any effect on the rest of the herd. Okay, very good. So we're up to the hour now, Dennis, so we'll wrap it up with that. Um, I'd just like to say thanks very much for coming on today. I found it very interesting. Um, I think what I'm taking from it is... Uh, using your vaccines and using your um, dosing appropriately is critically important. And all your evidence would be suggesting or would be showing that like where they're done correctly, they're, they're having a very positive effect on herd health. And I'd say something that we have seen, I suppose you could say that it's quote related, but also maybe herd health related is that the increase in production in farms is, is uh, improving year on year in reality. And a lot of that could be down to a lot of the herd health program that has been implemented since 2012-2013. So um, I suppose I think the way I've always described it to any groups that I've been dealing with or clients that I've been dealing with is herd health, like you're going to Dennis Howard or you're going to any vet around the country and you're buying a product from them, you have to write a check or you have to transfer money into their account for this product and you see the cost associated with it but you never really realise the financial benefit from actually doing that. And I think some of the stuff that you showed there is, is probably emphasising that that spend on herd health can't be underestimated in terms of the value that it's giving uh, in terms of both production and, and the labour management. People talk about animal health and labour. Like good, healthy animals don't require as much work as sick animals. So like I think there's great information shown there today in relation to the the trends in animal health over the last number of years and we should continue to try to develop further on those and more people should be looking at vaccination that aren't looking at it obviously in consultation with your own vet but uh, and for f- like you said 2600 hertz on the on the screening at the moment there's scope there for more and people should be looking for looking at it i think as a, a real like for it's like the, the goal package i think dennis is maybe is it two is it 290 or 300 euros or something for the year 
it's three four nine for the three four nine for the gold, yeah. yeah. Uh, like that, and that's your consultation with Dennis or Doreen or some other vets that are working with Monster as well. And in that's a small drop in the ocean in comparison to what you could spend on anything. Like I mean, you could drop three hundred and fifty quid on a on a couple of sick animals in over a day or two quite easily, and still not be at the bottom of it. So I think herd health monitoring. Like when we take into consideration the whole selective trico and the antimentic resistance, as you mentioned there earlier as well, like this is this is the way forward. People need to be monitoring it, to be getting access to medication in the future could be even tied into to this. The opportunity is there to be involved in it now. I think people should be looking at it. Uh, it's it's very 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 much uh, an influence an influential aspect of how your herd is going to perform from a fertility point of view, from a milk production point of view, like the liver fluke alone, then this can influence protein production in the farm as well. Like if there's a, pro a burden there, protein is going to be down because as you said, the liver is literally the, the powerhouse of the animal. And if that's not functioning right, they're not going to be functioning right. So I think it's very interesting. Um, I think we might get you back again in, in due course to talk about some of the the reproduction point of views and maybe milk recording as well during the course of the year but thanks very much for coming on today and for giving us that update so um, we wish everybody the best for the week ahead that's all for this week's let's talk dairy webinar series and don't forget to look out for more bonus episodes each week i'll be back with our usual dairy edge interview on monday so do listen in then i'm emma louise coffee and thanks for listening